Turn to Matthew chapter 24. And uh, those of you that might be new or you're joining us online, we put a high priority on the word. And so we don't put the verses up there. We uh, want you to turn in the word or, you know, at least on your phone. Today I'm going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 for this series, last week's message, and today I am going to jump over to Isaiah chapter 9 in just a moment to read a couple of verses that I think are really, really important when we talk about prophecy. We're talking about our end time series, and so if you're watching online today, we're so glad to have you. Before we dive into the teaching, though, I know Joey just prayed for workers headed back. Our school teachers will be headed back later this month. These are tough times, but I just, uh, just, it's so hard to do pastoral ministry in these moments. It's just not normal for us. And the connection that is a high priority for us at Lift Church, we just, that connectability is, is really difficult. And so we work really hard at that. And one of the things, it, it, this is going to sound crazy to say this, but one of the things that we all we have right now is praying, and uh, praying for you, praying with you, praying in those moments, and sometimes it feels like there's just this disconnect that's happening, and I want you to know that we feel that as well, and uh, it just kind of hurts on the inside when we can't be there, and so before we dig into the word today, could we pause, there's some people right here in the room as well as watching online, if you're watching right now, you need a miracle. You need a, a, a sense of connection, not only to someone, but to God in this moment. I want you to know that that's not something that we just, I'm not, I'm not just trying to make us feel better. Sometimes the expression of faith is the best thing we can turn to right now. It's not the last thing we turn to. It's the best thing we turn to. And so I just want to pray, and if you need a miracle right now, I'm just going to ask you just to trust the Lord. Maybe as a sign of receiving that miracle, you just put your palms up and say, God, I need this miracle right now. God, your word tells us that we can come boldly to the throne room of grace. We don't have to come with any shame. We don't have to come even with our doubts. We might walk into the throne room of grace, but we can ask you for what we need today. And so, God, we just come into your presence and we say, God, we need miracles. God, I pray right now, Lord, I pray for Elaine. As Jim's here this morning and Elaine's got this infection that they're treating right now. And God, we just pray. I know he wants to be by her side. He wants to hold her hand. But God, you're there. And so, God, we just pray for a miracle for her right now. God, I see Pam here, and we're praying for Paul's miracle right now. God, that cancer would be eradicated from his body once and for all. God, we ask for that. I pray for my friend in Iowa, father of four in that hospital with COVID-19. God, I pray for Janice, whose husband succumbed to COVID this week right now. God, I pray for her that you would give her a miracle of peace, that God, you are with her. And God, I just pray, Lord, we need you. We need you. Each one of us could come before you and say, this is what I need right now, God. And so, God, we just lift our hands before you and say, God, would you do it? 
Would you do miracles in our midst, God? We find ourselves in moments where you are the one we turn to solely. But God, I also right now just say, God, use Lift Church like you do on Tuesday nights to touch people. Use us to love one another in the midst of these moments. And we ask these things in Jesus' powerful name. Almighty God, you are. We ask these things. Amen. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 24. Last week, you can go back and see the message. Those of you that have been so kind about Monday night's Zoom, and some of you said, I didn't get to go. I wanted to be a part of that. The recording didn't work. And I got to tell you, it wasn't that good anyway. So you didn't miss a whole lot. On Monday night. I know a lot of you are so kind and so gracious. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit communicates things in spite of me. So maybe you should pray that over today's message as well. So last week in Matthew chapter 24, we kind of laid out uh, a linear timeline of events that are going to take place in the end times. And I declared to you that I believe that the end times began at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So we can very emphatically state that we are living in the end times. And a part of that end times is the expectation that just as Jesus Christ came the very first time and the Bible and the Old Testament prophesies and demonstrates to us, there's over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament that declared the first coming of Jesus Christ, that the entire Bible, including the New Testament, talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 24. There's actually over 1,500 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Now, Matthew chapter 24, for me, is not the linear approach where we line out these events. But in Eastern thinking, a little different than Westerners, we we have a tendency to want to put everything on the calendar, even the second coming of Jesus Christ. We want to put that on the calendar. But the Bible tells us we can't do that. And I believe that when you read Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is not telling us now this will happen and then this will happen and then this will happen and that will happen. But he is looking at, if you would, a collage of all the end time events. And as you read that, he is looking at moments and instances. As a matter of fact, I believe some of the things that Jesus referred to happen again and again in history. You see, in Eastern thinking, they don't think in a linear line, they think in cycles. The Bible is written for us to think about how things, how many of you have ever heard history repeats itself? Have you ever heard that phrase? How many of you know that there's a winter? We live in Florida, there's not really a winter here, so some of you may have forgotten that, but there's four seasons and there's cycles, right? And and so we know that there's cycles, there's the lunar cycles. So when Jesus is talking about these end time events that are happening in Matthew chapter 24, there are cycles, there are circles of moments that are happening. And a part of that, I'm not going to read this part today, but that you can look at uh, on your own in chapter 24, verses 
15 through 25, there's this description about the abomination that causes desolation. And what takes place is, is he's talking about what's going to happen at the altar in the temple, that there are going to be moments where there is a desolation that happens, that it happened prior to Jesus' first coming. There was a time when some of the uh, priests killed another priest in the temple. They shed blood in the temple. That was, what they did is they desecrated the temple area when they did that. There's another portion of scripture that talks about this. In about 530 BC, a Greek king during the, the Greek empire, a, a Greek came king named Antiochus Epiphanes came in and sacked Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He urinated on the altar and sacrificed a pig there. That was an abomination that took place. Jesus earlier had told his disciples that this temple site was going to be desecrated again. The disciples said, look at Herod's temple. Isn't it magnificent? And Jesus said, I'm telling you, all of these stones are going to come down. And I want to pick up reading about this for just a moment. And in verse 32 at chapter 24, it says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now pause right there, and I want to put something into context. Last week I said this. This is so important that you get this. It is not our job to figure out how prophecy will be fulfilled. It is our job to watch it be fulfilled. God fulfills his words over us. And yet it is amazing to me how many sincere people who love God are always trying to figure out how God will do it and when God will do it. And I think this is a, a mistake. I grew up hearing this passage of scripture where it says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. How many of you ever heard a preacher say, that you remember that Israel was restored to its land in 1948. And they said that based upon that, that generation would not pass until the second coming of the Lord happened. I remember hearing preachers say that this was a period of time, a generation. I remember being young enough for them to say that a, a, a generation is measured by 20 years. Every 20 years, we have a new generation. Can you imagine 1948? They said in 1968, I was in first grade, we believed Jesus was coming back. Some of you are shaking your heads. You remember this. When that didn't happen, you know what they said? In a, a generation is 40 years. And so in 1988, some of you bought that book. 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. And there was a lot of truth in there. The problem is, is Jesus didn't return in 1988. That kind of discredited the entire book, didn't it? As a preacher, I could stand here today and I could tell you that we could literally state that a generation wouldn't pass away. We could state that, that the people that were born around 1948 and the Bible says in the Old Testament that a generation is 70 years and with the favor of the Lord 
can even last to 80 years. And I could unequivocally, based upon that math, figuring out, I could tell you that 80 years from 1948 would be what? 2028. And if you back seven years out for the tribulation, we could say Jesus is coming back in 2021. And if I were to say that to you, and, and uh, declare that to you, I would tell you to run and find another church. Now, can I tell you that Jesus could come back in 2021? He could come back in 2020, because we could be off by just a year. As a matter of fact, September the 19th of 2020 will be Rosh Hashanah, which is the feast of the trumpets. And if we want to use the trumpet sound that's going to happen, we could start to manipulate and try to figure out how Jesus could come back on September the 19th, 2020. Wouldn't that be awesome? Some of you are going, oh, wait, I still have money in my 401k I want to spend. You see, we have to go to verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How dare we begin to set dates and figure out when we think that trumpet will sound or how we think Jesus is going to bring these events to pass. You see, there was another abomination on the temple site in 688 when the Muslims went in and sacked Jerusalem and a caliph took control and in 688 AD began to build what's called the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount that still stands for today. What I want you to see is that when Jesus was describing end time events, he was seeing these things that would circle over and over and over again. Throughout history, there have been antichrist, the spirit of antichrist. And today I really want to talk about the spirit of antichrist. Do you think that the Jewish people during the Holocaust believed that there was a, an evil spirit that was working against their people? And today I want to show you, because I believe that as the church, we can get so caught up in events that are surrounding us that God just wants us to live our lives righteously with his holiness upon us, that no matter what the times we are living in, there is a light that is shining in darkness that we are not worried about when Christ will return, but, but we know that he will return. When Jesus said, this generation will not pass away, I believe he was talking about the temple of Herod coming down. And in AD 70, it was torn down. And the words were fulfilled that Jesus said when he said, this generation will not pass away until they see the desecration of the temple mount. Those words were fulfilled. And I want to encourage you today that God fulfills his words. And that's what he was saying. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that's what we need to hold on to today. And so let's read a little bit farther as, as Jesus in verse 36 says, no one 
knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Verse 37 says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Do you see that Jesus is saying just like that, another cycle is going to happen. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. Now, verse 40 is very important. I want you to see this. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand meal. One will be taken and the other left. In Luke chapter 17, this same description is there. And Luke adds this descriptor to the words recorded by Jesus. Two will be in the bed. One will be taken. One will be left. Verse 42. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. What I see here is a descriptor of the people of God who have learned to not focus on the troubling times that they're living in, but they are focused on living civil lives amongst the people that they work, amongst the people that they toil with amongst the people they live in proximity to. Luke even records that even in marriage, there will be believers and non-believers. Now, some of you may, may say, pastor, how do you know this is what he's talking about? In the same context of this conversation, if you turn over a page to verse or chapter 25, there's some parables that Jesus describes after he's talked about these end times. And one of those parables begins in chapter 25 at verse 31. I'm not going to read it for you, but can I just give you the synopsis of this parable? He says, when the son of man comes in his glory with all his angels and, and he will sit on his glorious throne. And this is so important that you catch that phrase because I wanna talk about government and living civil lives in relation to our government in end times moments. And he says, when the son of man comes in all his glory, with all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations gathered before him. And notice what he says. He says, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then he goes on to describe this moment where there's a judgment that's taking place. And the people who are believers are, are called the sheep and the people who think they're even believers, who think they've lived civil lives, who think they have done things in God's name are called goats. And the sheep are, are, are brought into the presence of the glorious throne of God and the goats are cast out in judgment. And there's works that are described in those moments. There's, there's talking about when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me drink. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was in prison or when I was sick, you visited me. And the goats said, well, we did good stuff too. And the difference was this. Do you know God or not? 
Do you know Jesus or not? Did you recognize Jesus or not? And there's this separation. But notice that civility means that sheep and goats live together. Now, don't, don't be thinking of your neighbor as goats. I don't want you to walk over and go, my pastor, you ought to watch his sermon because I think you're a goat. That's not the way we do evangelism. But what I want you to see is that a civil life has the ability to demonstrate the glorious reign and rule of Jesus Christ prior to his throne being established on the earth. It's called kingdom living. How many of you have ever heard the term separation of church and state? It's pretty amazing to me that Christians love the idea of the separation of church and state as long as it serves our purposes. Do you know where the separation of church and state started? Some of you might would say correctly in our context that when our founding fathers drew up the constitution, they had in mind the separation of church and state, that one of the rights as Americans is that you and I would have freedom of religion. But you could go even farther back in the history to understand what established the founding fathers that uh, led a revolution against England And if you went back now some little over 800 years, there was a document called the Magna Carta. Do you remember studying that in school, the Magna Carta? The Magna Carta goes back to King John. It was signed in 1215. And there was about 181 articles, I think. I I probably have that number wrong. I'm not good at numbers, but... It was written by the Archbishop Stephen Langdon and there was a problem because from the Roman Empire when Constantinople declared Christianity as the state religion, church and government began to intertwine itself in such a way that not only did the church lose its influence but the church became corrupted through government And in 1215, we see the results of that when King John, who was a tyrannical and probably in their day seen as the Antichrist, they probably said he's the Antichrist that the Bible talks about. He was tyrannical and and he said, I don't want the church to have anything to do. He resisted any influence from the archbishop. As a matter of fact, there's stories told about King John that uh, whatever the, the archbishop would say King John would do the opposite just to bother the archbishop. But not only was King John uh, a tyrannical ruler toward the church, but he also was tyrannical toward the barons, the land barons. And so there was the threat of civil war and the Magna Carta was written by Stephen Langdon. And the first article or the first statement of the Magna Carta and the last statement of Magna Carta was that the church would not influence government and the government would not influence the freedoms of the church. Those were the the brackets, the beginning and the ending. And then all the other articles in there were to try to protect civil life in England to prevent civil war. And 
They all signed it in 1215, June of 1215, and then went out and didn't live to the document. But that's not where the separation of church and state began either. Could I suggest to you, if you back up from Matthew chapter 24, that just before this discord happens, this discourse, this conversation that Jesus is happening with his disciples in private. Jesus is in the public eye in Jerusalem when the Pharisees come to him in chapter 22, verse 15, and they lay uh, a plan to trap him in his words. The Pharisees sent some of their disciples along with the Herodians that, that would have been Herod's followers. And they said to him, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? In verse 18, but Jesus knowing their evil intent said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. I would suggest to you that at that moment, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. Has nothing to do with this world. And I wanna show you that when individuals become more focused on their rights than on righteousness, civility ceases. When Christians become more focused on their rights than righteousness, Kingdom influence diminishes. And as we are speeding toward this moment in end times, I want to call the church that you and I understand kingdom living. Instead of worrying about our rights, we need to worry about how our light is shining in darkness. And the first point I want to make today is that we need to understand that the kingdom of God, the government of God, is perfect and eternal. In Isaiah chapter 9, if you could look at just two verses with me, and I hope these verses will encourage you that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to something that will last. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, there's this prophecy about the first coming of Jesus. But I want you to see that in that first coming of Jesus, there's also reference to the second coming of Jesus. In, it's a very familiar Christmas passage to us in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And notice verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And then you've got to hear this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to show you something that's a little bit different. You see, there are probably 20 common forms of government that are on the earth right now. And and, and variations of that government. You and I live in a government that's blessed. I love the United States. I love being a citizen of the United States. I believe in democracy. Democracy or some form of democracy represents about half the countries in America or in the world. And I believe it's a great form of government. But can I tell you something? No form of government. I don't care what form it is. is his own, it's only as good as the people who are in leadership in that government. And how many of you know there's not a man on the face of the earth that's perfect, but Jesus was perfect. That's why his government is perfect and eternal. But I also want you to note that he establishes this government according to Isaiah 9 and verse 7. It's established with justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Righteousness has to exist for justice to prevail. What I mean by this is that righteousness, the idea of righteousness in the Old Testament was the establishment of uh, of truth. It's a foundation of truth. I, I gotta tell you right now, it is hard to know what's true anymore. And just because you post it on your social media doesn't make it true. Righteousness is the foundation of truth. It establishes a moral code to live by. It creates prosperity for people. But I love this part. The idea of righteousness is that it encourages an inclusivity. It brings people together. As a matter of fact, a righteous standard encourages that that you're not putting up any type of barriers, but you're inviting surprising acts of bringing people in. That's why I love the church. I think it's best when we are trying to open up the, the barriers, when we're trying to put down the barriers to bring in as many people into the kingdom of God. You see, the problem with human government is this. The standard of righteousness changes. Oh, we, we want this leader, so let's change the standard of righteousness. Oh, I'm excited about this leader because righteousness is gonna move up. Can I tell you something? There's one standard for righteousness and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And it does not move through time. And because of that standard of righteousness, justice, the idea of accountability and judgment is based upon that unmovable standard of righteousness that we find in Jesus Christ. Now the Bible states that Satan is the prince, the ruler of this world, and you and I know that he is working to kill, steal, and destroy 
when Peter was preaching at the house of Cornelius, he was describing the government of Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. He said, you know about Jesus Christ, how God anointed him, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, meaning authority, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. God was establishing through the man, Jesus Christ, authority based upon his perfect life so that he could rule and reign over our lives. Now, you may wonder what's your present opinion of our government status. I fear that our government leadership has been reduced from solving complex problems to simply holding seats over the opposition. And I believe that if there's not a change in our methods and the purpose of government that the future of the American government's at risk. Doesn't surprise me though. No human government can stand forever. If there's not a change in our methods, if there's not a change in the purpose of serving, then we too, like many governments, will falter and fail. As a Christian, I believe it's my role to vote my conscience, to pray fervently for government leaders, but to focus on righteousness. That my job is to not focus on a moving bar or standard of righteousness that's placed in the ideology of man, but to look to Jesus Christ. And that when we come into the body and the family of God, that my responsibility is to point to Jesus. I want to take a moment to speak to systemic racism in America. My statements this morning are going to be direct and they're going to be brief. And I want you to know my heart and not to take my words out of context to use against me. I don't want to be canceled by your culture. But I, at a very early age, drew a deep love for all people including people of color. The words Black Lives Matter ring true in my heart while an organization that uses that term to describe what they do, I know very little about and can struggle to find what they do to be representative of my past and my heart. I will pause in this moment to say I have have, had a long time love for law enforcement. I have dear friends and family that serve with integrity and honor and are serving in a difficult time in our nation. And I want you to know that I love law enforcement and have come alongside them in really personal ways through the years. And like any organization, there's always the ability to grow and become better through reform. But I want you to know, I believe there is systemic racism in our nation. 
And I wanna tell you why I believe this to be true. Because in my lifetime, I have seen prejudice. I've seen it within my own heart. Growing up, I heard the terms black-white all of my life. Now, I'm too young to remember a white-only approach to civil life, but I am old enough to remember black schools and white schools. I was fortunate enough to begin school in 1968 in rural Arkansas after desegregation. I was fortunate enough to share space at a desk with a person of color. I was fortunate enough to get to play on the playground with people who looked different than me. I was fortunate enough to watch my family's life begin at the lower end of the socioeconomic development in America to climb into advancement and opportunity. And I'm fortunate enough to see how advancement in America has happened in sports, in workspaces, in entertainment for people of color. I can't say a whole lot about the struggle that has gone on in those areas, but in the field of my own vocation, I have witnessed the church continue to wear the descriptors of black church and white church. If those terms still exist, then there is systematic racism in America. As I begin to see my influence in the church grow in a small way in the 90s, I begin to ask questions and learn. I remember moments in hotel conference rooms with people of diverse natures from black, white, Indian, Latino who would sit in a room and just simply look at each other and say, what do we do to, to move beyond systemic racism in the church? I watched on Sunday mornings as we remained the most segregated time frame of American life. And I'm not here to cast stones at other areas of our society in this message. I'm here to openly lament and mourn that systemic racism exists and its evidence is in the church. I know, even this conversation is more complex than we have time to address in this moment. My point in bringing this up is that we all must deal with the prejudice, the anger, the fear, the pain, all the emotions that stem from the seedbeds of protecting our own rights instead of seeking to live in righteousness. You see, the church must focus in these times to live for righteousness over rights, or I fear we will forfeit our influence. It's righteousness that cleanses the heart of prejudice. It's righteousness that removes from us a judgmental attitude toward any and all activity that we will experience in our lifetime. And it's righteousness that defeats the tyranny of the devil. Now, some of you might ask, have you lost your hope in America? No. I believe things need to change. I believe things can change. 
And I do not see that change with the system that is presently at play in the government at this moment is working for that change. But I do believe there are righteous people who are striving to serve this nation and they have my prayers for success. But I will tell you, first and foremost, my role as a citizen of the United States is clearly defined first and foremost by my citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And I will never compromise my citizenship in heaven for any nationalism or idea that we can change something on the earth. Only the zeal of the Lord can accomplish this. You see, when Jesus returns, I believe there will be a one world government in place. And I believe that that's necessary so that he can step in and take control and dominion upon that throne. And that brings up a problem that you and I have to understand today. And I've got to wrap this up. You see, you may believe that you're called to dominion theology. And what that means is, is you believe you're supposed to get everything on the earth perfect so that Jesus Christ can come back and just walk in and step upon the throne. Well, Isaiah 9 tells me that it's not you that's going to accomplish it. It's the zeal of the Lord Almighty that gets the job done. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them on the earth. In chapter 2, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that he said, this is good. And he said to Adam and Eve, take dominion over the earth. Why would they have to take dominion? Because the prince of this world, Satan, was in control. Now, I don't know how long the time gap is between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, but God created man and woman in his image. He empowered them with his power, and he said, I want you to take dominion, and, and they named all of the animals. There's peace. There's wonderful things happening. They have authority over Satan, but there's a rule. There is a righteousness that has to take place, and he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in chapter three, we see Lucifer, that snake show up and he tempts them. And he says, why would God say that to you? Does, does he not know that if you eat that fruit, you'll become like God? And they ate that fruit. And the command to take dominion of the earth failed in that moment. And what we see is no longer God being in authority on the earth and ruling with Adam and Eve in relationship with them. But what do we see? We see man begins to govern man. And the first story that follows, follows the fall in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel because the standard of righteousness is not one he's willing to live by. And since that fall, we have seen man governing man in failure after failure after failure. When God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to make you my people. And out of Abraham, we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would become the nation of Israel. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will 
be, I will dwell, I will reign, I will rule in the midst of you. And as long as we have this relationship, everything's going to be wonderful. And even though they're carried off into exile, we see God uses Joseph and raises him up to save the people. As they're wandering through the wilderness, God is providing for them. And he's saying to them, he said to Abraham, I want to use you to not only be a blessing to your people, but I want to bless all the peoples of the world through you. And when they are established in the promised land, they go through a period where they don't have government. They have judges based on the law that has been given to them, the righteousness, the code of conduct to help them solve their problems. But they grow weary with that and they come to Samuel the prophet and they said, will you give us a king? And Samuel said, how dare you ask for a king? Yeah, but everybody else has a king. We want a king. Samuel was basically saying, God is your king. And as long as we're in this relationship, he's going to protect you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to lead you. He's going to solve your problems. They said, yeah, 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 we know that. That's okay. Let him be there. But we want a king. And God said to Samuel, give him a king. And on the day that they anointed Saul as king, Samuel said, You have really messed things up today because now man is governing man again. And I want you to know that the promises upon Israel that were given to Abraham, I believe were forfeited because they have failed to be a blessing to the nations. And as man governed man, we see through the history of the kings that Israel fell into exile after exile after exile. And then Jesus came. Jesus came to establish for eternity the standard of righteousness that could not be met as man governs man, but it was met through forgiveness and mercy. When Jesus died on the cross, a perfect example of what it means to give oneself for another He established the ability as man, as the line of David, as the son of David, through the lineage of man, the ability to rule and reign over man's heart. And he accomplished that in his first coming. And he ascended into heaven. And all authority, the Bible says, has been invested. It's been placed in him. It's it's been declared in him by God Almighty. And when Jesus comes back to the earth, We need to be a church living in exile, watching and waiting for his return. Not shouting, but these are our rights. But shouting, look, the king is coming. Watch, be ready. We need to be saying to the one who's working in the field with us, we believe that the king of kings is coming. And when he establishes his throne, it's the perfect government because he's not coming back as man again. He's coming back fully God. And once again, we will see God's righteous throne established for eternity. And that perfect government will be upon his shoulders. And you know what I love about what Isaiah says? It will be peace. You and I need to understand that we are living in the peace of God.
What does it mean to live in exile? Well, next week I'm gonna break this down even more. But just to wrap up, I think there's some things we need to be reminded of. Live by the golden rule. Love God, love one another. Do good to all people. Put off anger and slander even toward politicians. Do not repay insult or injury with insult or injury, but with blessing. Show proper respect to everyone. Fear God. Honor and submit to, governor, to government leaders. Jesus, I think, wrapped it up in these words in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all this other stuff will be taken care of for you. We need to be careful as Christians in these times to live in ways that follow Christ forward, to watch for his return, and to hope for his government, even over our present democracy. I trust in the king. I've put my faith in him today, and I encourage you to do the same. We hope you've enjoyed this teaching by Pastor Steve. And thank you for your continued support in this ministry. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. For more information about our church and other ministries, visit us online at liftchurch.com.